0: The ruler sneered at Jesus and said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the chosen one, the Christ of God. Even the soldiers jeered at him. As he approached to offer him wine, they called out, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. Above him, there was an inscription that read, this is the king of the Jews. Now one of the criminals hanging there reviled Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other, however, rebuking him, said in reply, Have you no fear of God? For you are subject to the same condemnation. And indeed, we have been condemned justly, for the sentence we received corresponds to our crimes but this man has done nothing criminal. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied to him, amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The Gospel of the Lord.
1: It's a very beautiful thing. We celebrate the Feast of Christ the King. I think uh, in some official texts, we call it the Feast of the Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. Very beautiful thing, though, that the gospel that we read, that the church reads to us today, is Jesus Christ on the cross our King crucified. And I think it's always, often helpful to kind of cut through, you know, we've, we've grown up, most of us, with crucifixes all of our lives, right? It's, it's part of the Catholic paraphernalia. It's something that uh, we're very, very familiar with, we see very often. It's always worthwhile, I think, to look again as if for the first time, to really see what we're looking upon when we see our crucified Lord, right? Because it is not, a, it's not immediately evident, I don't think, to anybody how a man nailed to a cross, beaten, broken, dying, how this is a sign of great power. And yet it's on the cross, it's in his passion that Jesus is really proclaimed king. And there's a, there's a this wonderful, terrible irony in the fact that He's mockingly during throughout his passion, he's mockingly crowned king. Right, he's crowned with the crown of thorns, and he's uh, he has you know the the purple vestments put on him, uh, and the the very cross on which he dies proclaims him to be the king of the Jews, and uh, the, the irony is that even though he was mockingly being crowned king, he was actually being revealed to to us, to the world, for what he really was. And it was being revealed to us that this somehow is the real nature of power. That the Lord of the universe has the power not to subject others to himself, but the power to hand himself over. My favorite, uh, well, one of my favorite scriptures, I was actually kind of hoping that It would be in the readings today, but it wasn't. But I think I can still use it. Uh, One of my favorite scriptures is, We preach Christ crucified. Uh, Let me back up. Right. Uh, Jews seek signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but for those who are being saved, the power of God and the wisdom of God. All right, so why what is the significance of the part about Jews seeking signs and it being a stumbling block to Jews? Well, the, the, the messianic expectations that God's people had was that uh, they would receive a Messiah, they would receive a king, a new David, who would establish a lasting kingship. And just like every other kingship in the world, this would be a kingship of power. Right, if the promises that they had been waiting on for centuries were going to be fulfilled. They couldn't imagine it being fulfilled otherwise than a king being able to subject all of Israel's enemies and rule and establish a rule that doesn't end here on earth. This was what they were expecting. They were not expecting a Messiah who would come and be rejected and mocked and beaten and nailed to a cross. Because from any worldly perspective, that does not look like power, that looks like weakness. It looks like failure, not victory, not triumph. It looks like weakness and failure. And yet in this, our Lord reveals to us the true power that sustains the universe. It's been on my mind uh, all week and I don't know why, because I've, I've preached 11 feasts of Christ the King in my priesthood, and uh, I have never really spent much time thinking about this. But for this week, I have had the Mexican martyrs, like in the back of my mind, just kind of presenting themselves to be meditated upon. And so as I kind of entered into that meditation, it it led me to a reflection on the dynamic of worldly power and freedom. Right? Because worldly power is essentially coercive. People who have power and influence in this world generally have some ability to coerce others into acting uh, how they want. Now, whether that be because we are able to, uh, you know, if, if, a, if a government, a king, an emperor, what have you, is able to reward you for behaving a certain way, like I'm gonna increase your riches, I'm gonna increase your status, I'm gonna make you a famous and respected person, or whether they have the ability to punish you. I'm gonna take away the things that you love, I'm gonna arrest you, I'm maybe gonna to torture you, I'm maybe gonna kill you, right? Either way, there is, worldly power is essentially coercive. And that's why worldly power is always, has always been threatened by Christianity. Because a real Christian, now those are maybe a little bit, little bit rarer than, than we might think at first, but a Christian who really worships the crucified king, a Christian who really is willing to let go of everything rather than deny their Lord, that is somebody that you cannot coerce. And so I think about the, the Mexican martyrs and I think about Blessed McGill Pro. Uh, he was a Jesuit priest who was arrested and the, the government was gonna execute him by firing squad. And what they were hoping is that this man would break, right, that he would be a coward and beg for mercy. And so they brought the media right? and they had news reporters and they had people taking pictures. And they were, they were, their plan was we're gonna see this priest break and cry and beg for mercy and basically be a coward. And we're gonna take pictures of it and we're gonna report it in the newspapers and we're gonna show these Christians for who they really are. But that is not what happened. Because Father Pro loved the Lord. And not only did he love the Lord, he had a preferential love for the Lord. He preferred the Lord to anything else in the world. And he was not going to be coerced. He would not renounce his Lord no matter what the government did to him. And so where they, exp- where they were waiting for him to grovel, his dying words were, Viva Cristo Re, long live Christ the King. And the picture that they got was of him praying with his arms stretched out in this cruciform prayer. And this image started to get circulated and became kind of a rallying point for Catholics who were, who were being uh, oppressed and persecuted under this government. And this image became an object of devotion and this image became treason. You could be, uh, the, the, the government was so threatened, think about this, right, the powers that be were so threatened by the idea of a person who could not be coerced that they made the very image of his prayer before dying an act of treason that you could be arrested and yourself executed for having. This is the threat that's posed to the coercive powers of the world when somebody is really free. When somebody is really free in Jesus Christ to even lay down their lives rather than betray their Lord. Uh, One more example, and uh, this is a a young man, canonized saint, I think he was 14 years old when he died, Saint uh, Jose Sanchez, that the Mexicans call Jose Lito. And even in his youth, when he was arrested for assisting the Cristero rebels and tortured, the army really just wanted to break this young man's will, this child's will. Like, look at the nearest 14-year-old next to you and imagine, uh, imagine the military torturing this young child and telling him, if you will simply say, death to Christ the King will spare your life. And Jose Sanchez, with the soles of his feet cut and marching through town, facing death, instead of saying death to Christ the King, repeats those, those same words that Father Pro died with, long live Christ the King, and they killed him. When we have a preferential love for truth, when we have a preferential love for the Lord, when we are so ready to let go of everything, every good that we have in this world, there is no coercive power that can really have any kind of control over us. So here I think is a beginning of an insight into the the power that's revealed to us on the cross, but I don't think it's enough of an insight because it's not as if Christianity invented martyrdom. It's not as if only Christians have been willing to lay down their lives for what they believe in. The history is filled with people who were willing to lay down their lives for their homes and their family and their country and the things they loved. So if the, if the meaning of the cross, it has to be something more that it reveals to us than just the freedom that comes with being un, unable to be coerced. And there is some truth when, this, when the, the people mockingly say to Jesus, if you are God, then save yourself. There is some truth in that because Jesus could have saved himself. Right? Jesus' power is not just the power to not be coerced by the power of this world. Jesus is the name at which every knee will bend in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. He does have that power. So why? Why did he die? I think the deeper thing that our crucified Lord shows to us is that the ultimate power that exists is love. What we see when we look at our crucified king is we see a king who had the power to absolutely, completely give himself, lay himself down, holding nothing back. Jesus retains nothing for himself. His his entire person is handed over for us and in obedience to his Father. Our faith tells us, our scriptures tell us, that God is love. God is love. But the image of Jesus Christ crucified will always serve for us as a corrective against a wrong understanding of what it means to say God is love, because when we say God is love, we don't mean that God is the God of warm fuzzies or that God is the God of affirmation of you're okay, I'm okay, everybody's okay, don't worry about anything. That's not the kind of love we're talking about. That's, That's mere emotion. When we say God is love, the image that our faith gives us to tell us what that love looks like is the image of Christ crucified, of a God who lowers himself to become a weak member of the human race, to become part of his creation, and to not come as a worldly prince with power and might and authority that would make all the nations tremble, but as a lowly carpenter who lives most of his life in obscurity and whose worldly life ends in rejection and death. But he reveals himself as somebody who has the freedom and the power and the love to completely give himself away, to make a complete gift of himself to the other, and that's what love really is. And so on this Feast of Christ the King, we look upon our crucified Lord and we see this deep truth, this truth that can never be exhausted, this truth that the the power that sustains the universe, the power that is at the heart of very existence itself, is love, and love gives itself away. And what we are called to do as Christians who serve this King, this crucified King, we as Christians who proclaim this this King as Lord, what we are called to do is to imitate him more and more every day until the point that we become transformed into love. And here the freedom that we be, I began this homily with I think comes back again because if we are really going to love, right, not the good feeling kind of love, but the self-gift kind of love, the sacrificing kind of love, the kind that says, I will, I will pour myself out for you because I love you, that kind of love. We have to be free to love like that. How often does our love fall short because we are not free? Because we're afraid. Right? How often do we fall short in saying the difficult thing that would really be loving to our family member who is maybe going astray? But we're afraid. We're afraid of the discomfort. We're afraid of the broken relationship. We're afraid of what they're going to think of us. Right? And so out of fear, we don't do the loving thing. How... How well can you love your spouse if you can't let go of your own selfish tendencies? How well can we forgive and heal and reconcile if we can't swallow our pride and say, even though I've been hurt, I'm going to let go of that hurt to mend this relationship? Look how much lack of freedom and fear actually inhibits our ability to really give ourselves away. I had a wonderful and difficult discussion uh, with one of my classes this past week. And it was one of those uh, conversations about salvation and condemnation. And my students were really balking at the, uh, the idea that a soul could be lost for eternity because of one mortal sin. But the reason that we have a hard time understanding that teaching. The reason, because if we look at it from from our broken logic, worldly perspective, we say, okay, so you make a mistake. So you make a mistake in weakness, and you're going to be punished forever for it. If we think that way, we'll never really understand what salvation is. But if we think that the power that sustains the universe is a communion of love, and that when God invites us to share in his life, that he's inviting us to share in this communion of love. And in this communion of love, we have to be free. We have to be free because you can only give yourself away when you're free to give yourself away. And in this communion of love, there can be, there can be no holding back. Because in the Father, in the Son, in the Holy Spirit, there's no, there's no marking off a territory and saying, this is, this is my you know, private sphere and I will give you only so much, but then I'm going to draw the line and say I can't give anymore. There is none of that in God. And if we're going to be with God for eternity, if we're going to share in his life, there can be none of that in us. And until we can say to the Lord, I draw no boundaries with you. There's no part of my life, there's no part of myself that I hold back and say you can't have this. You can't come here. Until we can do that, we really can't share in the life of the Trinity, which is a communion of love. So as we look upon our crucified king, as we look upon this beautiful, terrible image of what love really is, let's pray that we can place ourselves on this altar and today by our participation in the Eucharist, by receiving our crucified king, that we can be a little bit more transformed into love, broken a little bit more out of our selfishness so that like our crucified Lord, we can have the freedom to really pour ourselves out for one another and pour ourselves out for him.